The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Together we're in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 35. We sung about the golden calf just now, and we're going to read about it. So let's worship the Lord as we do. Give careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel 
drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit you, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and seek his blessing. Do come to us, Lord. We bless you for your marvelous word. Oh, Father, we pray that, that as we look into it again this evening, that by your grace, you might come and help us. Cause us, O oh Lord, to behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, we pray that as we receive us, as we receive it, that you would even show us your own glory, that very glory which shines in the face of our Savior. Please enlighten our minds in true knowledge and grant that more and more we might come this evening to trust and treasure and follow him, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. As I was thinking about this golden calf event it brought to my mind the, the, the movie Apollo 13. I don't know how many of you saw that movie or remember that movie, the 1995 film. I think perhaps what made me think of it or remember it was the fact that twice in the text we see that word disaster, verses 12 and verse 14. And interestingly, this is the only time that the ESV translators chose to translate that particular word evil. It does appear elsewhere, but only here do they translate it with that English word disaster. Not sure why that is, but I figured it must be because the Lord wanted me to talk about Apollo 13. The movie obviously was about Apollo 13, this was to be NASA's third landing on the moon. That's what was supposed to happen. Uh, They never made it to the moon when an oxygen tank exploded on the spacecraft. 
All hope of landing on the moon was lost, and the whole thing was turned into a rescue mission. How can we get our astronauts safely back to the Earth? In some ways, it seemed like mission impossible. And I remember when they were talking about everything that could possibly go wrong, even in those last moments of the, of the uh, spacecraft uh, uh, landing on Earth, the parachutes could fail to deploy. The, the heat, sh- uh, heat shield could fail and they could be burnt up completely. Uh, they, they had to, to approach the Earth. At within, they had a window with, within which to approach at precisely the right angle Uh, approaching the Earth's atmosphere. Well, at the critical point when the spacecraft was approaching, uh, Gene Krantz, the director of mission control, he was played by actor Ed Harris, and there he was putting on his tie, making making sure he, he was dressed properly for the important moment, and he overheard the discussion about all of the risks, and he heard the director of NASA saying, I know all the problems. This could be the worst disaster. This could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. And Gene Krantz looked at him and responded by saying, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. I love that line. I want to suggest that what we see going on in our text this evening is that the Lord took that which was Israel's worst Disaster, one of their very worst spiritual disasters, and turned it into his finest hour, one of the Lord's finest hours, as it were. What a marvelous moment of revelation. Yes, a revelation of sin and of judgment, but also of glorious grace through the work of the mediator and of the urge of Paul to follow him, the Lord. This evening's message is the Golden Calf Incident reveals the Lord's judgment and his grace and the urgent call to follow him. Just, just three points as we unpack that message this evening. We're going to consider first its revelation then, its revelation of sin and judgment. Note well, brothers and sisters, what we, we learn in our text about both the awfulness of sin and what sin deserves. Part of what makes this sin just so awful, I think, is seeing it in, in the particular context, the context of what, what God has done and what God was doing for his people here. It's hard to imagine, in some ways, a better example of things going from wonderful to horrible. I mean, talk about going from the, the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows. Moses has literally been way up high on Mount Sinai, uh, you know, enjoying this 40-day experience of meeting with the Lord, and the Lord has shown him the pattern on the tabernacle. The Lord has, has revealed to him that, that beautiful and glorious place, that place where the Lord would meet with, he would dwell with his people. Well, what were the people doing while, while Moses was with, there on their behalf, soaring to the heights? They were sinking down to the depths disaster indeed. They were growing impatient. We do well this evening to to think about the call uh, to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. More about that later. But think more generally about the first and the second commandments. You know, did did Israel in in this sin, did they break the first commandment? Did Did they turn from the true God and worship false gods? 
Or the second commandment, did they, did they worship the true God by means of false worship, which was not prescribed by him? Some have argued that this really was second commandment violation, that, they, that they, they were worshiping the Lord by false means. You know, you look at it and you see that they did, in fact, worship the calf, saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and it has been suggested, and I think this is true, that this incident in some ways prefigures a later event in Israel's history. First Kings chapter 12 tells us about the time when Jeroboam will speak those same dreadful words, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And he'll do so when he sets up two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, so that the people could worship the Lord there rather than going to Jerusalem, the place which he had prescribed, second commandment violation. And in our text, we do get a sense that that Aaron, in some ways, is trying to play this off, like the the people really are worshiping the Lord by means of this golden calf. We see in verse 5 that he proclaims a, a feast to the Lord. To whatever extent they were at least claiming to be worshiping the one true God, clearly they were doing so contrary to his will, and ironically, they were doing so at the very time when the Lord was revealing to Moses what was his will, there on the mountain, his will regarding true worship. And the plural there, these are your gods, leads some to suggest that the idea here is that the calf represented a god who along with the Lord, these gods together led the people out of Egypt. Perhaps that's the case. But it does seem very clear. This was, this was first commandment violation. They were turning from the one to God, turning from the Lord, the one who had spoken to them through Moses. They were seeking after other gods, false gods. Verse 1, I think, makes that clear. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They were seeking to replace the Lord. They forgot him. They sought to attribute the Exodus to another God. This was indeed spiritual disaster. Verse 6 says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Some take that to imply that there was perhaps even sexual immorality that was involved here. We don't know that for sure based on the language. It certainly seems something that would have been likely to me. False idolatrous worship often included gross sexual sin as well. It certainly did in the, the idolatry of Corinth much later. Paul cites those very words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, as he's warning against idolatry, and in the very next verse, he also mentions and warns against sexual immorality. In our text, as you jump down to verse 25, you note that language that the the people had broken loose. That's language describing the people that are wild, completely out of control, out of control. They'd broken loose to the derision of their enemies, it says. That is, If their enemies could have seen them, they would have mocked them for so clearly abandoning the God who had delivered them. Indeed, perhaps they did. So this was total rebellion. It was rebellion in the form of a great party. It's like they were celebrating their rebellion. We might call it a rebellion celebration. 
This was nothing less than horrendous. And even Aaron's conduct itself was reprehensible, wasn't it? Especially when considered in light of what God was doing for him. The Lord was giving to him, to Aaron, and to his sons, the priesthood. That they would have that, that important work of leading the people in worshiping the Lord alone and worshiping him rightly. And what did he do here? Right off the bat, he's agreeing to mediate false worship. Look what it says in verse 4. There's no doubt about what Aaron did here, right? It says he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Very important to note that, I think, because we see down in verse 24, what what a joke his, his excuses, right, or his claim. I, all I did was I, I took the gold and I just threw it into the fire. And what happened? Lo and behold, out came this calf. It's worth mentioning that, that, that the pagan nations actually did claim that their gods, they didn't have to, at times they claimed that they didn't have to make their gods, their, that the gods they worshipped actually made those images themselves. This was referred to as the, the self-begotten idol. And so Aaron was actually a, appealing to this claim often made in pagan idolatry. I don't know whether the, 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 uh, the, the evil spirits which were behind those which were worshipped as false gods by the nations, whether they actually had the power to produce images this way. But clearly that's not what was going on in this text. Aaron was lying and making lame excuses. Notice the blame shifting, verses 22 and 23. In some ways this was reminiscent of Adam in the garden, right? The woman made me do it. It was not me, Lord, or Moses. It It was these people. You know this evil people. They made me do it. Aaron was right in that this was a people who were set on evil, but Aaron too was guilty. Indeed, they were all guilty, all guilty, every one. We will see that there's a sort of division which would expose those who persisted in this, in the sin of the golden calf rebellion. We'll consider that for our third point. But on another level, I think it's very important to note every last one was guilty from Aaron to every last Israelite, all guilty of this vile, heinous sin. Again, just think about this. They just entered into covenant, and what were they doing? Dr. Morales puts it well, I think, when he suggests that this was like a bride committing harlotry on her wedding night. Horrendous. So, so quickly, breaking covenant is symbolized by Moses breaking the tablets of stone right there at the foot of the mountain, the very tablets on which the Lord, with his own finger, engraved the law upon. They were broken, covenant broken. How do we know that they were all guilty? We should say save Moses and Joshua, I suppose. But how do we know that, that all the people were guilty? Well, in verse 10, the Lord spoke of consuming the entire nation in righteous judgment. His wrath was burning hot against all of them. And I think it's so important for us to see, brothers and sisters, to remember this evening that this is a reminder of what we all are and what we all deserve by nature as sinners. We are all covenant-breaking sinners, and we all deserve to be consumed in the fire of God's wrath forever. 
And it's when we are honest about that, when we acknowledge that, when we understand that, then then it becomes so precious and wonderful what we see secondly this evening. Not only do we see that this is a, a revelation of sin and of judgment, but we see secondly that it is a revelation of the Lord's grace through the mediator. This tragic moment of Israel's abomination, yes, it became the Lord's finest hour or one of the, the finest hours of the God of Israel, the one who has multiplied his wondrous works. And let's be clear on this. The great work of Moses as mediator, this was his work. This was God's work. We, we, we misunderstand what's going on here in verse 10 if we think that you know, God has kind of lost his temper and suddenly flown off the handle out of control and we can just be thankful that, that Moses was there to, to cool him down, right? As if the idea of, of God showing mercy and granting forgiveness through the work of the mediator was not his idea. Remember the context. Everything he's revealed about the the priesthood and the temple, the sacrificial system, it all pointed to the work that Moses was called to do here. What was going on in verse 10 when God told Moses, leave me alone, let my wrath burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. Of course, it's true. The Lord was rightly revealing his, his judgment, what sin deserved. He would have been perfectly just to do exactly as he had threatened. That's absolutely true. But it's also true that it was his intention for Moses to do exactly as he did here. This was, this was an invitation for Moses to be what God had called him to be. In some ways, as some have suggested, I think it's right, this was kind of a test for Moses. God was testing him, not, not tempting him, not the way uh, the, the, the serpent or the, the, uh, the, the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's not that God was truly desiring Moses to sin. Come on, Moses, do it, right? Give in to the temptation. Let the nation perish, and, 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 and you seek to become great yourself. Of course not. I think uh, Morales correctly puts it this way when he writes, Yahweh's words actually served to solicit from Moses the intercession God himself desired of him. I think that that's exactly right. God was calling Moses not to be selfish, not to seek his own greatness, calling him to act for the good of the people, calling him to stand in the gap and to intercede on behalf of of the nation, to be the, the mediator whom he, God, had raised him up to be. And by God's grace, Moses did so marvelously. Perhaps we should say this was, this was his finest hour, right? Moses' finest hour. Indeed, just note how Moses, as a faithful mediator, was, was acting, yes, acting on behalf of Israel, and also, most important, really, also acting on behalf of of God. Look at what we see in verse 12. He's concerned for the reputation of God, right? What would the Egyptians think of the Lord if after doing all that he's done to deliver them out of Egypt, he just allows them to die in the mountains and in the wilderness, quickly destroys the people? I don't think that we should see this as Moses sort of playing lip service to God, right? Trying to manipulate the Lord by feeding his ego and and seeking to get him to do something that he had no intention of doing. I think Moses is here genuinely uh, concerned for, zealous for the glory of God. 
and for God's will and God's desire as, as God has revealed it himself and his covenant promises. Note in verse 13, the appeal to the promises to the, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's promise to bless their descendants. We can say that as a faithful covenant mediator here, Moses was not seeking to get God to do anything that God himself had not promised to do, desired to do for the sake of his own glory and according to his covenant faithfulness. And what did God promise to do? He promised to bless. He promised to show his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his mercy, his compassion, not at the expense of his justice. Notice well that Moses has not minimized the awfulness of the sin. In this way, again, he has, he has represented the Lord so well. We see in verses 19 and 22 that Moses was as the Lord was in that just like the Lord, so Moses himself, we see his anger burned hotly against the people. Moses hated this sin just as the Lord hated this sin. But the amazing thing as we see in verses 30 and 32 is that in order to save the people from the judgment which they deserve, in order to make atonement for their sin, he's willing to offer up even himself for their sake. Verse 32, if you will not forgive their sin, then blot me out of your book. This is marvelous. This is beautiful. In the very context in which Israel is at her absolute worst, breaking covenant by this abominable act Here Moses is showing forth the the steadfast love and faithfulness with obedience most pleasing to the Lord. Of course, on one level, as verse 33 makes very clear, Moses cannot be blotted out in the place of other sinners. No, No mere man could atone for the sins of the nation or the world. But we understand, of course, that wonderfully Moses typified the work of the coming mediator, the God-man, the Messiah. And the beauty of the gospel, of course, is that, that he, the Lord Jesus, he's the one who, who fulfilled the law, the one who kept covenant perfectly in his work of intercession, the cross, that dark hour, that horrendous event of Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying as he paid for all of our sins. That was his finest hour, wasn't it? There was the hour in which he offered himself on the, 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 the altar of sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. It was as he was blotted out. It was as he faced the fire of God's judgment, God's wrath in our place for our sins. It was that moment in which Christ showed himself to be all that that Israel and even Moses himself would fail to be. Christ is the one who magnified God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. He did so for us, and his work was a sweet-smelling sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel. God was supremely glorified as his grace was revealed and shown forth. Grace, glorious grace indeed. Glorious grace which comes to us. Grace which demands a choice. That brings us to our last point about this great event which we see this evening. This is a call to follow the Lord. This is our application. 
Dear Christian, this evening, do you see rightly your sin and the judgment you deserve? Do you see even more than that? Do you see the the grace of Christ given to you? If you do, then you will also see the urgent call once again to own him, to embrace him, to choose him, to side with him. I want to suggest this evening that the question which Moses asks in verse 36 is a question which comes to all of us this evening. Who is on the Lord's side? That verse was the heading of the, that one of the hymns of our last hymnal, Who's on the Lord's Side? It never made it into our Psalter hymnal, but I think those are such good words for us to hear this evening. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? And we answer, by thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. This is the call of Christ. And it is a call to forsake all for the sake of him. What a radical call it was when those Levites heeded the call. They came and gathered around Moses. And what were they told? Verse 37, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And they did so. See in verse 38, some 3,000 people died. Imagine that. And interestingly, we, we see in verse 39 that this was something of an ordination service. Could you imagine if, if on June 2nd, when we all gathered for the ordination of our brother Matthew Ezel, if we put a sword in his hand and said, here you go, Matthew, go. Shed some blood, right? Go through the co- congregation. And this is part of your, your rite of passage unto the office. And in a sense, that will happen as our brother will become a minister of the sword of God's word, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But now in our text, surely the Levites were not to go and just begin randomly killing people. There, were, there had to be some, some means of discerning which ones should die. Some believe that, that such discernment was the purpose of what we see in verse 20. So the, the calf was burned, it was ground up as powder, scattered on water. We know from, from Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 21 that this water was the water of a brook which ran down from the mountain. So it seems that Moses took this powder and he scattered it on the water of the brook and made the people to drink that water. Now, perhaps what was going on, perhaps this was similar to the Numbers chapter 5, bitter water Test. You might recall how the, the priest, in, in, in discerning whether indeed adultery had been committed when a husband was jealous and accusing his wife, he was to take some of the, uh, the, the dust from the, the floor of the tabernacle and put it on water, and the woman was to drink. And what happened to her belly, belly as it were, how, how, whether, whether her belly swelled up would reveal whether or not she was guilty of this sin. Perhaps something similar to that was going on here. How their bodies reacted to the actual drinking of their idol would reveal whether in their hearts they were clinging to their idolatry. At any rate, somehow I believe that the Lord revealed which ones were so bent on rebellion against him that they were now ripe for judgment. And they were judged. Uh, but, but the judgment they faced 
as well as the, uh, the judgment afflicted upon those who suffered in that plague we see in verse 35, whatever that was. These judgments, these are judgments which are simply pictures of what will happen to all those who in the end don't choose for the Lord and belong to him, all those who in, in the end whose names are not written in God's book. How important is it for us uh, to hear that this evening, friends, especially if there's anyone here this evening who has never come truly and, 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 and said, yes, I'm on the Lord's side. Perhaps you've never come in, in true repentance and faith and embraced Christ, and you know this evening that you are not on the Lord's side. We would invite you, come, I hear this urgent call, come to him even this evening, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and know that your name is written in God's book. This is the call of Christ. And it's a call to forsake all for his sake. A call to forsake friendship with the world and its rebellion against God. A a call to be willing and embracing the Lord to face the hatred of the world. I say that because I believe that this event was in the mind of our Lord when he spoke these words in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 36. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This event, I think, reminds us, especially in light of our Lord's words, that this, this is a world which is at enmity with God, which hates God. Indeed, we, we know that sadly, so it was for so many, even in Israel. In fact, in our text, even, even among those who were not destroyed at the golden calf event, many of them, perhaps the vast majority, were not truly on the Lord's side. This, after all, is that generation which would rebel again and which would perish in the wilderness And we see that our text ends this evening with the Lord speaking of those who would be blotted out of his book, those upon whom he would visit judgment. And we see here, and we will see it again in the next chapter, that that the Lord brings this sad announcement that he will not go with this people. Interesting, isn't it? He will send his angel, but he, the Lord, will not go. Moses will again have to intercede and so forth, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but clearly the story is not over. But the wonderful truth is that God's saving purposes, his plans, will not fail. The Lord, in the end, will have for himself a people who are indeed on his side, and we can rejoice brothers and sisters, that this is all part of our story, who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are on the Lord's side. We are that people. We are those who have been saved from the judgment by the glorious grace of him, our great mediator. Let us purpose clinging to Christ to live then as that people. Let us own him. Let us cling to him. Let us walk with him, even amidst a world which increasingly rebels against him. This is, 
indeed a call to, to follow Christ amidst a world that is in a constant uh, celebration of rebellion against the Lord. And those who will, if we are faithful to him, who will hate us, hate us for our faithfulness and, uh, to him and for walking in his holy ways. We do well this evening as we ponder this event to remember that, that, that they are the ones headed for the great disaster. We, we should feel compassion for them, shouldn't we? Compassion for a world that's lost. It should only stir up in us a zeal to bring to them the gospel prayerfully, praying for them. I think Moses in the text this evening teaches us much about what intercessory prayer ought to look like. Prayer that is motivated with a zeal for God's glory and God's will. Prayer which reflects, reflects God's mercy and his compassion for a world under judgment. We know that that the Lord this evening is not calling us to take up our swords and go kill our enemies. He is calling us to take up the sword of his word, to proclaim the gospel to all of the nations, calling them to turn from their idols unto him to serve him, the one true and living God, while waiting for his son from heaven. He's calling us to wield that sword, to wield that sword against every form of idolatry, idolatry as we see it even in our own lives, to put to death, this is mortification, put to death seriously all that we see in our lives that is contrary to him. He's calling us not, not to grow impatient as Israel did, as we, as we wait upon him, the Lord. I want us to think about that even as, as we come to the table this morning. Let us not grow impatient. Let us be those who live by faith, by God's promise, waiting upon the Lord. The world may hate us. The world may reject us, but that should only remind us that we are on the Lord's side. We are those who have been called into fellowship, friendship with God himself And soon we will see that with our eyes visible as Jesus comes again from heaven. For us, we can certainly say that that our finest hour is yet to come. This is no mission to land on the moon. This is the call of God, upward and onward into glory. He has called us heavenward, and Christ will come again, and he will call us unto himself into fellowship with him in heavenly glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, Let us walk in a manner worthy of that hope. Let us live accordingly. Let's pray together. Help us, O Lord, so to walk. Help us to live in fellowship with you, even as you by your spirit come and dwell in us and fill us with your word. Lord, use your word and conform us unto the image of Christ. Do that work, Lord God, not only by your word proclaimed, but by the word visible as we will experience it that now. Hear us and bless us and be glorified in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.